Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas at Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. I had a question that was put to me, and it was such a good question that I decided that I wanted to do a podcast on it because this is something that affects every one of us. Simply stated, the question is, is it okay for Christians to use online dating apps? Now, we had a supporter of our ministry, a lovely lady, happily married, and uh, she put the question to me because she sees this in her church. She sees it within the Christian community, and it makes absolute sense because this is where we live. We are a technological culture. Uh, We have gone past the point of no return as far as technology is concerned. And in one hand, I don't have a problem with that because I love technology when it is used redemptively. As a matter of fact, when we started this ministry in 2008, that was one of the driving things about our ministry, and I framed it this way, the redemptive use of technology. I realized that there was a there was an echo of omnipresence in technology, meaning that we could wrap the globe in seconds, taking the practical message of Christ around the world. And so I know I saw how the the world was using technology and in, in many godless and nefarious ways. And I thought, what about if we invert this? What about if we turn it on, turn it on its head, technology that is? And what could God do with a ministry that was really technologically centered, using it redemptively to spread the message of his dear son? Well, here we are all these years later, and yeah, it was a good idea. And I find it stunning sometimes at what God is doing here at Life Over Coffee. I find it humbling, but it's definitely something to rejoice about as we see God transforming lives through this ministry. And so I am okay with technology in that way. Of course, we use technology uh, within the banking system. We use technology uh, regarding our health as we communicate with our uh, health care uh, providers. And, and that is a good thing, and we're not going to retreat from that. It's not going to change. This is where we are. And so one of the things that I've noticed within the Christian community is that we can be slow catching up uh, to where the culture is. And I'm talking about the positive things about technology and the Internet. And sometimes we can look at it as, though, well, that is bad, that is evil, and there is no question that there is evil out there, technologically speaking, but that in itself is a reason why we need to index forward and step into this technological age and understand it. As a matter of fact, I just finished a a book, a digital download here at Life Over Coffee. It's called The Cyber Effect because I, I have children. Many of you have children. We have to be thinking about these things, and so I, I've spent a good bit of time studying technology, social media, the internet, algorithms, and our cultural evangelist. And I wrote this book, The Cyber Effect. It's free in our store, and, and I would commend that you go get it and download it, share it with your friends, because that book could actually form a backdrop to a lot of the things that I'm going to be sharing with you here. We have to get up to speed with technology. If we don't, not only are we going to be left in the cyber dust, but we're going to find that our children and the succeeding generations, they're going to move forward. 
And we need to be parenting. We need to be shepherding within the church. Leaders need to be leading. Therefore, we need to be informed about what is going on technologically. And so, yeah, there is good and evil here, but it's the good that we want to use redemptively, and it is the evil that should uh, motivate us to find out what is going on and how to use it. One of the ironic things that I I find within our Christian culture is that parents give their children devices, a mobile phone, for example. It is a weapon. It is a portal to access, for example, pornography more quickly than at any time in the history of humanity. In fact, you could access more pornography within 30 minutes than where people from my generation would access in a lifetime. It is a weapon, and we have to understand this. The parent that gives a child a mobile phone without any accountability, any oversight, any shepherding is setting that child up for objective and abysmal failure. And so give them a phone if that's what you believe you need to do, uh, but make sure that you come alongside them and you provide the accountability and you install the apps that are necessary to guard them for doing things that could set them up for, a li for life-dominating sins, deep habituations that they could spend their entire life trying to extricate themselves from. And this is a reality. I'm not trying to, be, to cast fear into anyone's heart, but I've spent my my entire adult life almost uh, doing biblical counseling and technology is almost always associated with the things that people bring into counseling sessions. It is here, uh, it, it is ubiquitous, and we need to understand it. And so I want to narrow the conversation down to a specific question about the internet, social media, and technology. And I want to interact with the question that our supporting member asked us, our community. I have weighed in on it. Others have as well. But I told them here at Life Over Coffee that I think what I want to do is I want to develop a podcast because this is not just important to our uh, online community, but this is important to all of us. And I hope that what I'm adding here will add to the conversation in such a redemptive way. And so this is episode 496, and that's how you would find it at lifeovercoffee.com. The title is, Is It Okay for Christians to Use Online Dating Apps? Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you 10 things. It's merely suggestive, uh, and you can add to this list as well because it's not exhaustive. But if you do go to the show notes here at Life Over Coffee, episode 496, I do want you to click on the link that will take you to our store so you can get that book, The Cyber Effect. All right, so let me get into these 10 things. These things, I think, I hope that it these are 10 things that you will use in your conversations with others. I also hope that you will add to them. And for those of you who are part of our Life Over Coffee community, uh, please, let's continue this conversation because this is important. As I said, we are past the point of no return. We are in a technological age, and that is not going to change. Therefore, we want to make sure that we understand it as thoroughly as we possibly can. All right, so the idea, is it okay for Christians to use online dating apps? Here are 10 suggestive thoughts, and I'm I'm going to start with number one, the Bible. The Bible does not say. 
as the Bible does not explicitly speak to most things. There is not a verse-to-decision, one-to-one ratio uh, regarding the Bible and every decision that we're going to make in our life. It's just not that way. In fact, if the Bible answered explicitly every question that we had, uh, the Bible would be, there's no, I mean, that's not possible. It's not even reasonable. However, uh, the Bible is written in such a way, and God has has quickened us and made us alive. And so we have the illuminating Spirit of God working in us. We have the Bible to guide us. We have our conscience also to guide us. And then we have the community of faith. And so it is a misunderstanding of Scripture to think that there is a one-to-one ratio. I have a question, therefore there is a verse for my, my decision that I need to make. No, it doesn't work out that way. Most all of our decisions come under the umbrella of wisdom. It is a wisdom issue, and that's why we want to use these four uh, different balancing ways of making a decision. The four balancing things are, what does the Bible say? How is the Spirit of God illuminating you? What does your conscience say? And then there is a safety in a multitude of counselors, as the Bible does say. And so what does the community say? And so you'll find great balance if you work through those four ways of making a decision. Now, by the way, I have an entire one-hour webinar on how to make a biblical decision. You can type decision-making in our search feature uh, at Life Over Coffee. And you'll find a lot of resources if you want to learn more about making a biblical decision. But we have to be honest with the text. The Bible does not say, and so that's point number one, and it flows into point number two, meaning that we have freedom. Christians have purposeful freedom. Now, I like to modify the word freedom that way. And so where the Bible is unclear, we do have freedom, but we have to modify the freedom, uh, modify freedom with the word purposeful. It has to be purposeful freedom. The way that I illustrate that is like a train running on rails, meaning a train can run at optimal levels. It can maximize all that it could possibly do as long as it's running on rails, as long as it's working within structure. You see, you hear this in our culture where uh, people say, I'm free, I can do anything that I want to do. Well, that is a, a misunderstanding of what freedom is. Freedom without structure can lead to disastrous results. If you remove the rails, Uh, from that train, then that train is not going anyway. It's going to plummet. It's going to nosedive right into the dirt. Uh, It cannot do what it uh, could possibly do if it was running on the structure of the rails. The Christian rails for, for, for us, is fourfold. I've already mentioned them. It is the Bible. It is the Spirit of God illuminating our minds. It is our conscience, and it's the community of faith. And you can remember it very easily like this. So purposeful freedom will always run on the, on the rails of the canon, the comforter, your conscience, and the community. Now think about it this way. This is how you can get off the rails of purposeful freedom. I mean, just thinking that I'm free to do anything that I want to do. Well, first of all, you can ignore God's Word. 
Well, the way of the transgressor is hard. You're going to lose freedom if you sin against what God's Word teaches. For example, I'll just use an obvious illustration, thou shalt not kill. You kill someone, and you're going to experience limited freedom as you will be incarcerated, for example. The um, Spirit of God, the Comforter. The Bible talks about grieving the Spirit of God or quenching the Spirit of God. And for we who may have been made alive by the Spirit of God in accordance to the Word, by the power of the Word, well, we can grieve the Spirit of God by going against what we know the Spirit of God wants us to do. And when you begin to grieve the Spirit of God or quench the Spirit of God, you're going to minimize the potential freedom that you could have. And then you have your conscience. Well, we can't sin against our conscience. We see this in 1 Corinthians 8, where these Jewish believers, they thought that if they ate that meat, then they would be sinning against their conscience. And Paul says, you know, we have knowledge, but knowledge can puff up. It can make one arrogant. And even though we know it's okay to eat that meat, well, these people, because of their former understanding, because of their former manner of life, they do not believe the way you believe. They do not have this pure Bible knowledge. They've been trained by their traditions. And you want to be careful because they cannot sin against their conscience. And so sometimes your conscience can calibrate your decision-making. Even though you have freedom to do it, maybe you shouldn't do it because your, your conscience is condemning you. Now what you would want to do with an individual like that is to bring them into a purer understanding of the canon. Bring them into a purer understanding of what God's Word teaches so their conscience is not tripping them up. But what we do know is that the conscience is malleable. You can have a weak conscience. You can have a dull conscience. You see this in Hebrews 3.7, Hebrews 4.7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. You see this in 1 Timothy 4 too. The hardening of the heart, the searing of the conscience. And so the conscience is malleable. And if you ignore the conscience, then your, your conscience can become dull. It can become hard. And again, you will start losing your freedom because a hard conscience now has no sensitivity to the Spirit of God. And now they, they will not be able to perceive all the things that God could illuminate them in understanding as God opens their eyes to the Word of God, where their eyes will not be open, their eyes will be scaled over because they have begun a process of dulling or hardening their conscience. And so we have to listen to our conscience, whether it's weak, whether it's dull, whether it's hard, or whether it is pitch perfect. And a pitch perfect conscience is when your inner voice is right in the same tune as the Word of God, and that is the perfectly pitched conscience. And so the canon, God's Word, guides us. The comforter, the Spirit of God, guides us. Our conscience guides us, our malleable conscience. And then, of course, the community of faith. We want to borrow brains. We want to ask other people their perspective. I'm not talking about asking everyone. I'm not suggesting that we take a poll of ignorant people. But someone who is competent in God's Word, there is 
there's safety in that kind of counsel. And so point number two is freedom. You're free to do what you want to do, but I've modified that freedom by purposeful freedom. Because if it is not purposeful, then some people will take freedom and they will run right off the rails of the canon, the comforter, the conscience, and the community, and they will find their freedom shrinking by the minute. And so you have purposeful freedom here as you think about dating apps, which is the question that we are interacting with in episode 496. Number three, I'm calling evidence. Uh, anecdotal evidence. And as you talk to people, you'll find that some folks have found biblical relationships and long-lasting, happily-ever-after marriages on dating apps. Then again, you go to the other side of the room and you talk to someone and you'll find that they are dis disastrous results. The things that happened to them because they were on an online dating app. I only mention evidence here. I'm calling it anecdotal evidence. I'm mentioning that because, well, people are going to share their stories with you. And so if you poll a group of people and you ask them about online dating apps, is it good? Is it wrong? Is it evil? Is it right? Well, there will be some people that will share their success stories and there will be other people that will share their failures. And you need to understand this. Anecdotal evidence is like eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you read into a text and you, you make the text say whatever you want it to say. You have a pre-existing thought, an idea. A preacher has a hobby horse that he wants to preach, and so he finds a text to support it. That's called eisegesis. Well, anecdotal evidence is like that as well. Those who have found success, well, guess what? There is success in online dating apps. Those who have had disastrous results, guess what? <laughs> there is trouble ahead of you if you use an online dating app. There's circular reasoning and anecdotal evidence. And so you be careful when people begin to give you their stories, not just about online dating apps, but about anything. Treat evidence for what it is. Is something that worked for them or did not work for them? But that cannot be the primary data point that we use to make our decisions. And so number three is evidence. Number four, options. There is, more, there is more than one way to find a spouse. In some cultures and communities, you'll have arranged marriages. Is that wrong? <laughs> well, it depends on who they arrange you with, but that is one way that, that people get married. The point here is that we don't want to say that there is a one-size-fits-all mentality. Different cultures, different individuals, they do things differently. And so the operative word here is caution. Proceed with caution. Is it wrong to use online dating apps? Not necessarily. Is it disastrous to use online dating apps? Possibly. And, and so we want to be careful that there's only one way that a person, two people can come together and, and be married and is online dating apps. Could that be the mechanism, the pathway that people use to get married? Well, it could be might not be. Uh, when we talk about options and online dating apps being an option, 
I only have one word for you, and that is caution. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong for you, but I am saying with, with the biggest all caps that I can communicate, caution, and I'll explain why as I move through these other things on the list. And so number five is motives. You really do have to identify the motive of a person's heart, motive for marriage, motive for relationship. I have been doing premarital counseling all of my counseling life, and when I talk to people about getting married, uh, one of the questions that I ask them is, why do you want to get married? It is an important question. And I've never had anyone give what I believe is the best answer as far as a motivation for getting married. I, I, I call it a transcending reason. It sounds like this. I want to get married because I believe that we can glorify God more effectively by, by becoming one flesh than by being two independent entities. You see, that is a transcending reason. It has the glory of God as the primary reason, the primary motivation for getting married. We believe that we can glorify God more effectively by becoming one flesh over than being two independent entities. I've heard all kinds of reasons to why people want to get married. For example, I'm lonely. I'm not saying that shouldn't be a reason. As a matter of fact, loneliness is a good reason to get married. But if that's the primary reason, then that's a bad reason because you're satisfying a, a longing in your soul uh, through a, a relationship uh, that can go away. If we place our primary reason on something that can disappear, then we will always be vulnerable because we don't know if that's going to be here today or be there tomorrow. And this is the thing that keeps me from being lonely. I don't have a transcending. I don't have an immovable reason, an uninterrupt, uninterruptible uninter reason for getting married. What you place your hope in, that will be the thing that will give you the security. And if your hope is in something that can be dissolved, eradicated, no longer exist, then your hope will always be a fragile hope. And so while it's okay to get married because you're lonely, I understand that very well, there has to be a transcending reason. Uh, you'll find other people, and I find this a lot, that they, uh, they're insecure and they want to have another relationship because they feel whole uh, when they have that relationship. And this is how this breaks down in marriage. Uh, if you get married primarily because you are insecure and you want a relationship, then you will always be guarded You'll always be monitoring that relationship. You'll always be assessing that relationship to see if you're doing things right, doing things wrong. Does he love me today, not love me tomorrow? Why is he doing this? Why is he yelling at me? Why is he sinning this way and that way? You'll always be managing the relationship, and then you will begin to adapt yourself so that you can and this is a, a hard way of saying it, but this is what's happening, you will begin to morph into something so that you can manipulate the relationship so that you can keep it, so that you can stay secure as long as I am with him. I'm using the female illustration here, but it goes both ways. 
If you get married primarily because you're lonely or you are insecure, then you will have to make sure that you maintain that relationship at all costs because they are the ones that's solving the loneliness problem. They are the ones that's solving the security problem or the insecurity issue. We have to have a transcending reason primarily to get married, and that reason is to glorify God as the one flesh unit as opposed to being two independent entities. Yes, getting married will satisfy a lot of things, a desire for physical intimacy. Obviously, you will not be alone. Uh, obviously, you will find a security in that relationship, but those things can't drive you because what you will do in essence is make your spouse a little G-O-D. I can be happy if... I am not lonely. I can be happy if I am secure. I can be happy if I am having physical intimacy. And all of those things are provided by your spouse. Therefore, your spouse will be the governing agent in your life. He will be a God that, or she, will be a God that will have power over you because those are the primary reasons to get married. We have to identify the motives of the heart for marriage. And then we have to strategize Stratify those motives from primary, secondary, tertiary. Uh, you get married. A tertiary reason would be because he has hair, <laughs> because he is handsome, uh, because uh, he's not overweight. Well, all three of those things are going to go away more than likely. That is a tertiary reason. And so we want to stratify our motives and understand why we are doing this. And sometimes we can be so... Sometimes we can be so self-deceptive, and even in an unwitting way. It's like uh, when you uh, hear yourself uh, on an audio recording for the first time, and it's like, do I sound like this? Well, everybody knows you sound like this, but you, you're the last person in the room to know. That's why when you go through those four decision-making processes of canon, comforter, conscience, and a community. This is where the community of faith will be very important to perhaps help you to see a blind spot that you are not recognizing. It is the worst form of blindness is when we're blind to our own blindness, and we need the community of faith. We need the Word of God. We need the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, and we need to have enough self-awareness to realize what our conscience is doing to us. One of the ways that you can dull your conscience, by the way, is to just your decision-making. Well, I am lonely, therefore I am going to do this. And when you begin to rationalize or justify that way, you can layer your conscience, a slight layer that will become a dulling process that will make you less perceptible to what you're actually doing. And so number five is motives. Be sure to identify the motives of the heart. Number six is I'm calling disinhibition. I talk about this a lot. It's the disinhibition effect. In fact, in my book, The Cyber Effect, uh, one of the chapters is the disinhibition effect because uh, that's, it's just that important. The disinhibition effect is a person who is not inhibited from doing or being whatever he wants to be. 
uh, on social media, and I'm, I'm speaking of it in the most negative way. There's no social filter. There's no risk in doing some of the things that we do. We're disinhibited from saying whatever we want to say, and you'll see this on socials where people say some of the harshest and unkind things because there's no risk in the relationship. Th this is freedom without structure. You're free to be anything you want to be. You're free to say anything you want to do. Uh, say you're free to do anything that you want to do because of the disinhibition effect. You are three thousand miles away or on the other side of the world of this individual, and you're just not inhibited. It happens all the time, and it can tempt a person to say or to do anything their heart desires, including all the nefariousness. A lot of syllables in that word in our imperfect hearts. I was counseling a man a number of years ago. This was back in the mid-aughts. I mean, this was before social media was social media, when you can get on these chat, get in these chat rooms and, and these other platforms that they had back then, back in the uh, ancient days. And he was a 40-something-year-old man, but he got online and he pretended to be an 18-year-old man. And I asked him why he did that. He said, well, this is what he said. This is such weird logic such a rationalization that will quench the Spirit of God, grieve the Spirit of God, begin to harden the malleable conscience to where now you're just in no man's land, blind to your own blindness. This is what he said. He said, well, people don't like me the way that I am, so I thought that if I get online, I pretend to be somebody else, people like me, it's like, I'm not a bad person. And it's like, can you even hear yourself talking? <laughs> I'm going to be a hypocrite. And the, the metaphor for a hypocrite is a mask. I'm going to put, a, put on a mask. I'm going to pretend to be somebody that I'm, I'm not to see if they like me. Their conscience was so twisted. It, it was so hardened that they could not perceive. And that the Spirit's eliminations was not penetrating. And it was such a distortion of anything that God's Word would teach. And, of course, he was doing this outside of community. He was failing on all four points kind and comforter, conscience and community, doing this nefariousness online because he wasn't inhibited. The shame that we carry, this internal awkwardness of our souls, the reason that Adam would put on fig leaves. When you go online, you can rip the fig leaves off and pretend to be anything that you want to be. This is true. And we have to understand this. And a young lady, an older lady, a widow woman who really wants an online relationship, a man, a boy, a, a young man who is really desperate for a relationship, well, all you're going to see are the best foot forward. That's all you're going to see. It is 2D. You're not going to see them in a 360-degree radius. You will not be able to know them. And and they will. They They, they will be... There would be no inhibition about presenting themselves in, in ways that may or may not be true, but it will not be a full understanding of who this individual is. There's an article here at episode 496. It's called Dating, the Artificial Season That Does Not Count. That's my definition of dating. That's where the boy and girl come together to fake each other out until they eventually get married. And then they get married, there's the big reveal. And there are many little reveals all along the line throughout that marriage, especially early on. Oh, I did not know that you were like this. Oh my goodness, I did not perceive this when we were dating. And look, there is more here. I didn't see this piece of baggage from this, your Samsonite collection. It's even worse online. 
Number six is the disinhibition effect. Are you warned enough? I'm not trying to scare you away, but I do want you to walk into this if you're going to walk into it with your eyes wide open. Number seven, transparency. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the lack of transparency that the disinhibition effect causes. But I'm talking about the folks who use these apps. They should be willing to show their conversations uh, to a friend. People who are rightly affected by the gospel have nothing to fear, nothing to protect, and nothing to hide. I'm not talking about blogging your conversations, as some people might do because of the disinhibition effect. They have no social filter, and they just put nonsense online. It's, it's crazy at what some people write and blog and, and put online as they or revealing their inner selves. Maybe you should keep your inner self unrevealed just a little bit and, and not be so transparent, especially online like, like that. However, th there is another kind of transparency uh, that is, is prudent. It, it's wise. It, it's humility. It's vulnerability. It's weakness. These are good things. We're not proud. We're not trying to hide. And Again, if we're living above board, then for people to peek into our lives appropriately, that should not be a bad thing. By the way, Covenant Eyes is a software protecting uh, service, a Christian organization, as I understand them. A and they have accountability partners. So you, you can sign up for Covenant Eyes, and I can have an accountability partner where a person can see you know, all the places that I go on online. They get a report every week or so that, that shows where I've been and what I have been doing. That's that kind of transparency, and they have been doing that for years. There's nothing wrong with that. There doesn't have to be anything wrong with that. And so what I'm suggesting here in transparency is that you have somebody that has access to your dating app. We're like that with our devices here around our home. Our, our children, knows they know my password. If they wanted to get on my phone, all they have to do is hit the, the appropriate numbers, and they, all of them, all three of them know it. And they can get into our devices. There's nothing to hide. And so, again, uh, there's two ditches here. And, and one is just blowing up all your stuff on the Internet with no social filter whatsoever and being transparent to everyone. No, that's foolish. The other ditch is I, I don't want anybody looking over my shoulder. Again, if we're living above board, then we should be looking, somebody should be looking over our shoulders. In fact, we talk about that like a person who's struggling with a porn addiction. We ask them, make, suggest that you don't have a computer or a laptop or a device in your bedroom, for example, like at night. And when you access the computer, you have your computer in a living space where it's facing, uh, where people could just walk in and see what you're doing. That's, a, that's an appropriate, that's appropriate transparency. And again, if we're going to be transparent, uh, I think it would be wise, but especially when these dating apps, because uh, we just don't want to, we don't want to think that you know we can walk onto the roof of a building and and see a, a woman and not be tempted to do ungodly things. No, no, none of us is above that. Uh, the deceptions and the machinations of our hearts that all of us will be prone to be dece deceptive. That's how we are bent. That's how, we, that's how we lean. Adam ever liveth in our souls, and so we want to be appropriately transparent to other people. That's number seven, uh, transparency. Number eight is diligence. I do not recommend 
making a lifetime decision based on online discussions. That would be wrong. I don't even know of a rational argument that would say otherwise. It would be foolish to do so in light of all that we know about online deception, some of the illustrations that I've shared already in this episode. And so if all you know is the individual that you met online, if you're going through this portal of online dating and you build a relationship with, or building a relationship with the opposite sex, and you're heading toward marriage, and then you make the decision of getting married, and that is all your due, due diligence is a 2D understanding of this person. You have to do more than that. If, when, the time is right, there are more questions and things that you need to excavate, that you need to discover. Uh, for example, their theological understanding. What anchors them theologically? Everybody has a theology, including Satan. His theology is he doesn't, or he rejects God. He rebels against God. He believes in God and trembles, but he does not follow God. He has a theological worldview, a foundation, a presupposition. What is the theological anchoring and foundation of this person that you are interested in? How do you know? Uh, have you met the parents and interacted with other family members, uh, the church that they attend, or do they attend a church? The due diligence that, uh, I'm sorry, the engagement that they have with their church. What is their pastors or whoever has spiritual oversight over this individual? Uh, what is their um, transparent description and their assessment of this individual that you are going, you're thinking about making an online, uh, a lifetime decision with this person. What do they say about him? One of the things that I've observed, and I've, I've shared this with our community a, a few times, is that we have an online training course where we teach people uh, how to do biblical counseling. Uh, it's a self-paced study course that anybody can do that really wants to deepen their understanding and practice of Christian discipleship. But this is one of the things that I've observed in all of these years that we've been doing this program is that sometimes we do site visits. 100 times out of 100 times, the people that we meet on site in their homes where they live, they're different from the person that we understood them to be as we interacted with them online. I'm not saying that they were evil. <laughs> I'm not saying that they're necessarily disappointing. I'm not saying that there was anything necessarily wrong with this. I'm just saying that there is no way to know a person the way that you need to know a person if the only way that you know them is online. 100 times out of 100 times. You get to meet a person, learn a person online, and then you meet them live, technicolor, 360. Well, that's going to be a different person than what you thought. And so the artificial season of dating, it has its own, it creates its own big reveals after you get married. But if you skip doing diligence by uh, discovering this person by asking other people, spiritual leadership, 
their theological presuppositions, their engagement with the local church, their affection for Christ, how are they loving God and loving others practically understood, and you haven't spent time with them, and you haven't done due diligence, and you go from online dating to the altar, uh, that's, uh, that's just a, you're setting yourself up for a big disappointment in most of those cases, but in 100, 100 times out of 100, they will be different. Number eight, due diligence. Number nine is leadership. Now, I'm going to read the question that my supporting member wrote talking about this idea of leadership, and then I'll, I'll give a few points um, after I share with you her question. She said, when you discuss dating apps, could you elaborate on the role of women, especially in the context of being pursued by men? I'm curious how this dynamic aligns with the Holy Spirit's guidance in finding a life partner. I wonder if using a dating app would be contrary to the concept that women are traditionally pursued by men and therefore in a more passive position, that the women are in more of a passive position. And so I, that's an excellent question. And again, we had an ongoing discussion at lifeovercoffee.com. This is what we do, by the way. And if you're not a supporter of our ministry, well, then you should be. Why not? Uh, these are conversations that you can jump in. And the reason these conversations are, are better uh, than what you'll find in a Facebook group, one, uh, we're never unkind to anyone. Uh, we operate with a social filter. Uh, we talk privately. It is a smaller community, and you can talk more transparently. And we can talk about things that it's hard to talk about in many of these other groups because there's so many drive-by shooters. There's so many people that are sharp shooters who are ready to sabotage the conversation. You will not find that at Life Over Coffee. I was telling someone recently, like two or three weeks ago, uh, who was new to our community, and there was a little bit of inhibition about sharing a contrary view than what some of us believe. And I told her, I would be absolutely shocked if somebody was unkind to you. Uh, we have this thing called loyal disagreement, uh, that we can disagree with each other and be loyal to each other. If a person agrees 100% with everything that you say, then beware of that person because they, they're a liar. They're deceptive. You can't agree 100% with everyone. And, and if a person is not communicating their disagreement with you, then there's something wrong with their relationship. Now, perhaps that they're afraid to share uh, their disagreement because, you know, some of us can be such uh, tyrants or authoritarians or knuckleheads that we're not going to dare share our perspective that's contrary. Uh, but then there's other people who just struggle with fear of man, and, and they're not going to share their opinion. And what you have is a rubber-stamping community. We don't have a rubber-stamping community here at lifeovercoffee.com. We have loyal disagreement, and so the disagreement is modified by the word loyal, and that is important. So that's, making, that's my little commercial here, that you ought to be a supporter, or even better yet, be a leader over coffee because there's more benefits, and you can find all of that at lifeovercoffee.com. But my friend, our supporter, is asking uh, about women having more of a proactive, active role uh, in pursuing as the traditional understanding of a passive position. 
And so I kind of land in the middle of this. And so uh, one point that I would make is making yourself available for someone to find you does not have to be wrong. A lady would attend a church or other gathering. She'll go line dancing or do other things to put herself in a position, hoping a guy would notice and be interested in her. Well, you could make a similar case for dating apps, and if that's what's happening, and the lady is doing all of these other things, someone's looking over her shoulder, an appropriate person, and there is accountability, and there's someone uh, coming alongside her, addressing motivations of the heart, because our hearts can be so twisted and wicked and deceptive. And if all these other things that I've shared with you are in play, and they are practically and objectively uh, happening, is it wrong for her to put herself in a place to be found? Well, we do that already, and so you can make a case. And so that's one. Uh, number two, girls must understand that many guys, and even more guys online, and I want to be careful here because there is a, there is a, a, a majority report of, of people who are just unkind <laughs> to the male species. And, and they group the male species, uh, and they're just one group. They're all manipulative. They're all devious. They all want to score. Uh, and they know how to say the right things to lure a desiring, romantic heart into their web. Now, that is true. But it's like somebody on uh, Facebook yesterday, they were responding to a quote about some deficiencies in the, in the church. A and they collectively just said, well, th the church is this way. No, the church is not this way. The, the church is awesome. The church is great. The church is fantastic. And, and there's more local churches doing it right than wrong. Now, are there bad churches? Yeah. But we have a way of just, just putting a bow around all of them and make these broad brush blanket absolute statements that it really doesn't help the conversation. Yes, the church does there are churches that do bad things. There are preachers that do bad things. But by and large, the church is unbelievably awesome and doing a great work, and pastors are shepherding, and they love their people. That's the majority report. And so we want to make sure that we just don't categorically say that all men are evil, all men are manipulative, devious. They want to score, and they know how to say the right things to lure a desiring romantic heart into their web. Well, that is true. There are men that do that. There's a lot of men that do that, and there will be more men doing that online because of the disinhibition effect. People who don't have the courage, a man that doesn't have the courage to go up and, and talk to a girl, pursue a girl, build a relationship with a girl, uh, puts himself online hoping that she will pursue him. Be careful. And so that's why she wants to be transparent about these conversations. And so the question here uh, under number nine is talking about leadership is what it's talking about. And our supporter is asking, is it okay for a woman to pursue? No. I say making available doesn't have to be wrong. Number two, understand that some guys, especially online, when it's even less riskier uh, to be for the girl to turn you down, 
and he can really spin himself up to be something that he's not, like the gentleman who was in his 40s pretending to be an 18-year-old. And then also, men should be the pursuers, and her instincts are right. Men should be the pursuers. Men are leaders. One of the most disastrous character traits in a husband, and I'm talking about marriage counseling that I have done, is passivity. Passivity is probably the number one thing that I've seen in men. Now, there is a word cloud that would rise up over this word passivity, but in most marriage counseling where the men need to make some changes, what you're going to find is passivity. Is that how you want to begin the relationship? With him being passive and you pursuing him? And now, there could be another issue here where, where, where the woman... Uh, maybe she comes from an authoritarian religious culture or authoritarian family dynamic to where she doesn't want to uh, be that vulnerable and weak, and she wants to pursue, and she doesn't want to submit to a man, and maybe she likes this idea of pursuing, and that has to be addressed, and maybe he is passive. And when you find uh, two people like that, where the husband is willing to be passive and the wife is willing not to be passive and to take more of a leadership role, that is a marriage that is, it is bound to crash against the rocks. That is going to be a problematic marriage, and so that is not how you want to begin. Making yourself available is one thing, but pursuing the relationship, well, that's another. And so caution, he must be a man. And part of being a man means proactivity, it means planning, it means pursuing. And so her instincts are right. It's not necessarily wrong, in my view, uh, for her to put herself out there. But that is with, it goes back to like purposeful freedom again. You, you have freedom to put yourself out there but it better be within structure. It better be on rails because ultimate freedom, it could lead to all kinds of places that will ultimately, it will restrict, constrict, it will, it will, it will uh, lessen the freedoms that you have. And so again, number nine of the 10 things are leadership. And then number 10, lastly, I, I want to make a distinction between real and good. Now, this is not my idea. Actually, uh, this is Nancy Percy's idea. Uh, she came out with a book. The, the title, of, I have it here. Uh, it's called The Toxic War on Masculinity. Now, I had the, the privilege of, of reviewing this book. And uh, one of the things I said about the book, <laughs> I reviewed it in April of whatever year it was. And my review said, this will be the best book you'll, you'll read this year, and it's only April. This is a fantastic book. But I'm not here to promote the book necessarily, uh, but uh, Nancy did a wonderful job with this book. And uh, one of the things that she talks about in it is the difference between a real man and a good man. And I want to go back to what I was saying earlier, that we can, we can broad brush uh, people, we can broad brush churches, and we can broad, broad brush uh, pastors, and we can speak in such an absolute way. There's no nuance. There's no subcats. There's no subcategories. There's just one category. And uh, Nancy Percy, uh, through her research, by the way, that's one of the most researched books that you'll, you will read, just hundreds upon hundreds of footnotes. And so she did a wonderful job. But one of the things that she discovered is that there is a difference between a real man and a good man. 
In fact, one of the ways that you can test this is by asking, what is a real man? Uh, well, a, a real man, people would, you know, maybe talk about uh, this macho man or the men that we see in these blow em up movies, maybe a, a John Wayne type macho man. For those of you who are under 40, John Wayne uh, was Clint Eastwood. Uh, you have to be under 40, uh, over 40 for that one as well. But a cowboy western tough guy, John Wayne, Clint, Clint Eastwood, blow em up movie. These are real men that spit and smoke their cigars and shoot people out on the street. That's a real man. If you ask someone what a real man is, I mean, that's what they would, generally that's the characterization and that's accurate. But if you would ask the same person, what is a good man? They will give you a whole different definition. By the way, the definition would align with the fruit of the spirit. There is a difference between real men and good men. And so the person that you are dating or that you want to date, is he a real man or is he a good man. There is a difference. You know, the world does bash men too often, but Nancy makes this case. And it's really fantastic. She says that the best men in the world, Christian, non-Christian, from her research, the best men in the world, as far as providing, as far as proactively leading, as far as taking care of their families, the best good men in the world, of all the men in the world, is one particular demographic, and it's Christian men. Christian men are the best men, according to Nancy Percy and her research. Now, she also says that the worst men in the world, as far as leading and taking care of their families, they're also Christian men in the church because there's two categories of men in the church. There are good men, and then there are real men. And it's a warning to all of us to talk about the evils of Christian men. Yes, that is very true. But we also want to recognize that there are good men. And when you're dating someone, you have to make that distinction. You see a blow-em-up movie guy with the, you know, the fast car and carries a lot of money uh, in his jeans and, you know, and got all the bling on. And uh, no, that's a real man. Is he a good man? All you have to do is just line up the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Those nine things there, love, peace, joy. And then uh, those are assessments that you can make about the person that you're dating as you understand them online. But of course, then when you do due diligence and get to know them in reality, you want to make that same assessment. Is this a real man or a good man? So those are 10 ideas that I'm providing you. And, and again, it's not an exhaustive list. It's in episode 496. Is it okay for Christians to use online dating apps? I would love for you to add to the conversation, but I want to give you a CTA because one of our supporters who was part of this conversation at our Leaders Over Coffee forum, uh, she sent in some things. Amy, Amy, thank you so much uh, for sending in these things. She was unsure where she got them, uh, but she shared them with our community. And I said, I might use this in my podcast. And so I appreciate you sharing them with me. And so I want to close by giving you several call to actions. They're very, very quick. There's seven of them. And uh, this will really help to flesh out about this idea of online dating. Now, again, Amy was unsure where she got this. So if, if you know, if you've heard this before or seen it somewhere, if you let me know, I would love to add it to the show notes so that we can give proper accreditation for it. Uh, but we do want to uh, 
reveal our sources, uh, but we're just not sure where the source came from. So right now, the source came from Amy, and thank you so much. So this is the CTA. There's seven questions here to think about online dating. Number one, will this decision, action, or attitude? Now, that's how all of these began, okay? Will this decision, action, attitude, will it bring glory to God, or will it bring glory to self? Now, make that an open-ended question, not yes or no, okay? Number two, will this decision, action, attitude produce spiritual benefits? Open-ended. What are those spiritual benefits, this decision, action, and attitude? Number three, will this decision, action, attitude lead to spiritual bondage? Yes or no? And then explain your answer. Number four. Will this decision, action, attitude expose my mind or my body to defilement? Yes or no, and then explain your answer. Now, this would be great questions to ask uh, for a person who's pursuing online dating. Okay, does it necessarily have to be wrong? But will you be honest with these questions? Number five, will this decision, action, attitude benefit others or cause them to stumble? Now, there's guardedness here because there's some things that we do that people are just going to stumble over and you can't do anything about it. Uh, if you try to keep all people from stumbling over the decisions that you make, then you're not going to make, you probably won't make a decision at all uh, because everybody will stumble. But within here, we want to think about this with wisdom and discernment. Yes, some people will stumble and you have to move on with your decision, but I think you understand the spirit and the intent of this question. Number six, will this decision, action, attitude further the cause of the gospel? And by the way, that's the transcending reason to get married. We want to become one flesh because we believe that we can glorify God more effectively as one flesh as opposed to two independent entities. And then finally, number seven, Will this decision, action, action, attitude, will it violate my conscience? That goes back to those four pillars of decision-making, canon, comforter, conscience, and community. And you, you want to make sure that you circle those wagons and always make your decisions with those four things as part of the decision-making process. All right, this is episode 496. Is it okay for Christians to use online dating apps? I trust this was helpful. I trust it will add to the conversation. Please share this video share this podcast, and make sure they get the show notes at episode 496 because there are a lot of resources there, plus get my book, The Cyber Effect. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.